Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Karen Littlewood, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Association, or the OSSTF. Covering education issues has been weird the last couple of years during the pandemic. While keeping schools open for in-person learning has been a priority, getting education workers the assistance they need and the assistance they've asked for has always been somewhere way down on the list of things to do. Now, education is struggling to be an election priority, and education workers have been trying to put their concerns back on the front burner since March 2020. So it seems like an interesting place to begin with an elections issues series of podcasts for this provincial campaign. Prioritizing education is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Ironically, education issues were very front of mind on the provincial agenda just before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. All of Ontario's education unions were undertaking job action with rotating strikes, and what's remarkable was that there was a lot of support for teachers and their colleagues. It looked like the unions even had the provincial government on the ropes, and then COVID-19 arrived on our shores and spread rapidly. Schools were shut down, and so was the job action, and by the end of the second week of the pandemic, all the unions had reached a new deal with the Ontario government. The strike was over, and questions about school moved away from general concern about resources and hours to the effort to make schools safe enough for kids to return to in-person learning. Oddly enough, the concerns about keeping schools safe from COVID and just making our education system better are not mutually exclusive goals. What is the effort to improve ventilation and air quality in school buildings, but an admission that those facilities need billions of dollars in infrastructure improvements? You've heard a lot about Bill 124 and how it affects healthcare workers like nurses who have acted so heroically in the pandemic. Well, Bill 124 affects teachers too. They're stymied by a limited 1% pay raise per year, and they've had a lot to deal with during the pandemic as well. Teachers, I mean. At least the nurses have gotten a $5,000 bonus. Looking at these circumstances, it might be easy to understand why teachers are so angry as we're going into an election season, and the head of one of the province's largest union of education workers is going to lay all that out for us. So on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast, we're joined by Karen Littlewood of the OSSTF, who will tell us about what might have happened if the teacher strike had not been interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic, how education is in danger of not being treated as a priority in this election, and how Ontario's teachers are going to make sure that it is. We will also talk about the rural-urban divide in education issues, the infrastructure backlog for schools that has nothing to do with COVID, and the battle to hire more teachers and more educational assistants to make sure that kids are getting the most out of their education. And finally, we will talk about partisan politics, what education workers are looking for in a candidate and in a party, and how they will deal with Doug Ford and the PCs in the event that that premier and that party gets re-elected in June. So I caught up with Karen Littlewood earlier this week via Zoom. Okay, so Karen Littlewood, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin with, um, I want to do kind of like a little what if game. Um, the people will, may remember a lot has happened since um, the pandemic started, but right before the pandemic, there was job actions by teachers across Ontario that seemed to come to a swift end as, as the pandemic was breaking out. 
I wonder, though, um, and maybe you've thought about this, too. What might have happened had there been no pandemic? What was the kind of what would have been the end game for that job action if um, COVID-19 had never been a concern in the first place? Yeah. So across the province, it was teachers and education workers. And as a federation, a third of our 63,000 members are education workers, secretaries, custodians, psychologists, um, plant maintenance workers, you know, you name it. And you're in education, even into university sector and early childhood education. We were on strike. We had had the announcement from Lisa Thompson uh, on the Ides of March that said, we're going to go to a pupil teacher ratio of 28 to one. And, you know, that was some clever strategizing on the part of the progressive conservatives because people responded with, well, I had big classes when I was in school. So what's the big deal? Mm. Not realizing that a 28 to one totally devastates education funding. And, you know, with boards trying to run courses for students, what it means is they look for anywhere they can to cut. So our education workers who, you know, may not, it's, it was often referred to as teacher strikes who may not have been highlighted really were going to be cut and it, and it did happen. So, you know, we had a campaign, we uh, entered into what we call transparent bargaining. We placed all of our asks on the table and they were incredibly reasonable asks. The government kept coming back with no 28 to one. It's not, you know, it's not a big deal. We were working just to highlight that that meant that probably a quarter of the teachers in Ontario high schools would be gone. It was a direct attack on Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And so we strategized to what was the best way to make sure that the public understood what the battle was, that the public understood the need for properly funded public education. And then we decided that the best way for us to, to adequately use our, our resources, we entered into rotating strikes. There were a couple of days where all of our members were out. There was one day in particular that was incredibly uh, powerful in that all of the education unions were out together. And our members said, we feel strong throughout this. We really felt like this was something that we had to do. And we were gaining momentum. We also took the really dangerous task of polling the public after each one of our strike days. And much to our surprise, and, and really, we were so pleased to see that the public support grew as time went on. And I don't think that happens very often in strike situations. We also, what we hear now is, oh, you teachers were on strike all the time. We weren't. In fact, <laughs> over that December until the pandemic period, our members lost. It depended on what region they were from, four or five days pay. We were not on strike all the time. We were using our resources effectively. We were winning the, the public support. And so, you know, to have it all come to, I always think it was, it's like, it's like a cartoon, you know, the road runner and you just, he <laughs> runs into that wall, that, that cave that's painted on the wall. And that's where we were. We had run into that wall and it was not wise for us. There was no way there was going to be appetite to continue with that. It did take us longer than the other affiliates to come to an agreement with the provincial government. Right. And then our locals also had to have deals. We still have one bargaining unit that does not have a deal as we head towards the August 31st uh, expiration of our collective agreements. But I think we probably would have continued to maintain that support of the public. Um, 
And what also happened that I really haven't highlighted is there were a number of, I don't know, you want to call it backpedaling uh, in mm. French. It's reculé. like it, they just <laughs> they backed off. And every time Stephen Lecce would say, well, now we want you to back off. You don't back off of a reasonable position. We were asking for cost of living. We were asking for class sizes that are the best for education. We were asking for things that were reasonable, yet, you know, the government is saying, no, well, it, it really was all about money for them, right? And, and, right? and if you'll also notice the timing, any time that there was one of those backpedaling, it was when we, OSSTF, were at the Sheraton Hotel bargaining. So we were a target, but we were very effective in that messaging and getting that information out there. We caught the government totally off our guard with our transparent bargaining. And then it gave us the ability to share what their asks were, which were totally unreasonable. So, you know, it was we were in a really, really good spot and then a pandemic and we're right. reasonable. So, you know, we had to make that decision. Yes, we will work to get an agreement. We will do the best for our members you know, hoping that it would be done in a few weeks. And now, you know, here we are I'm sitting, sitting with a mask on still. Right. Yeah. Of course, COVID-19 did happen. And I, it really feels like since then education, when we, when we talk about education issues, it's gone into kind of two streams. Now there is the, the COVID side of education. So, which means like getting teachers, vaccinated, have, making sure they have masks, making sure there's ventilation in schools. But there is still a whole of that whole other aspect of education, which is just like the regular run of the mill everyday issues of education. And are, are you concerned that the COVID stuff is overshadowing like the non-COVID issues that teachers are wanting addressed? I think it's often used as a, not necessarily an excuse, but, a, you know, it's COVID. So can't you just let this happen? Mm. Well, to have a teacher in a classroom with a laptop, some students in the classroom, some students at home is totally ineffective. Nobody gets the support they need. But the response to that is, well, it's COVID. So what are we supposed to do? Right. There are effective means of having e-learning, online learning, uh, two mandatory. It started out as four mandatory. Two mandatory e-learning courses is not appropriate. Yes, there is an opt-out, but it's it's inequitable access. It's very challenging. Um, you know, so there's lots of things that we're saying, well, because of COVID. But I think what it's been is an opportunity for the government to advance their push towards privatization. There was an Ernst & Young report that came out in, I think, late 2018. And it, it didn't even just hint at, it really clearly stated the move towards education. There were also, um, there were also uh, leaked documents that said, you know, the main problem, this is from the conservative government, leaked documents is the main issue in education is it is not revenue generating. Mm. I'm like, okay, you just have to stop and think about that for a second. Should public education be revenue generating? Or how could it be revenue generating? Well, you need a strong online presence. You need courses that you can sell to many different countries. You need, you know, all sorts of, of mechanisms like that. And hey, look, now we've got a pandemic where we're using all of these methods and tools where private corporations and industry are offering such wonderful services. What we need is humans in a classroom with students delivering the programming. And then we need the rest of the supports within a school, the mental health supports, the custodians, the secretary. We need a robustly funded education system because education is an investment. And that's what we have to keep trying to focus back.
back on, we can do some challenging things for, for, for a short period of time, but they should all be described as emergency measures. And that's what they were. And when the emergency is over, we need to consider what we have to do to rebuild Ontario and to ensure that we are prepared for the years to come. This is going to be a huge recovery. Education should play a major part in it. Education should be funded so that we can play that major part. For every dollar you spend on education, you get a dollar thirty-seven back to society through, you know, less need for social services or the judicial system or healthcare. It's a proven fact that people who are educated need less access to healthcare because they are taking care of themselves. You know, we have to be looking at marginalized groups and are they getting the information that they need? How do you do that? Public education, not right. giving somebody a laptop and saying, here, sign on, do your course and move on. I mean, you're almost talking about two different messages there. Um, yeah. and, and, and I mean, not just coming from you and the teachers and, and the education workers, but also from the government where it's like schools have to be open. But at mm-hmm. the same time, we are doing more online stuff, right. which, I mean, the two don't kind of add up. Well, seriously, like the number of times that the Minister of Education said, you know, we need people back in school face to face. And then the next sentence is talking about the mandatory e-learning and, you know, online courses and moving towards modernization and we need a robustly funded education system. We don't need to move to a laptop. It can serve a purpose for many students. We have many students who over the years have accessed e-learning because of other um, activities or involvements they have, or for whatever reason, we have some some really small communities where you're not going to be able to get the course selection unless it's through e-learning. That's great. That should continue. The overall across the board, you all need to do something online to prepare you for the future. No, (laughs) that's not what we need. Appreciating that the government is, you know, made efforts to expand broadband, um, both, you know, both the provincial and the federal government, I should add. But, you know, this does speak to the problem, as you were saying, of accessibility. And I think Mm -hmm. one of certainly where I am in in, in Guelph, which is um, our our, the upper Grand District School Board here covers uh, Wellington County as well, which is a rural rural area. Mm -hmm. So. You have, but I mean, this is not a unique story. This is not a unique situation. There are lots of areas where school boards cover urban areas and rural areas. So you do have urban students who probably have, um, at, at least if you know they're from families who can afford internet access, have mm-hmm. good internet access. Mm-hmm. Well, families in rural areas do not. That's right. And it is not, you know, it's often characterized as a Northern Ontario thing. It's right. not a Northern Ontario thing. Simcoe County is not Northern Ontario. I'm from Barrie. I can't get TELUS phone service in my house. And I live in the city <laughs> of Barrie. It's random. Sometimes I have to stand in my driveway, you know. So when you consider what students have to do, that we had students who were actually going to sit in a parking lot at a school so that they could access the Internet. We have schools where your cell phones don't work inside. So to say, well, use your device. It, it just doesn't work. You know, we don't have that access. But the other thing that we really have to be addressing is the infrastructure and the fact mm. that we have a 17 billion with a B, 17 billion dollar school repair backlog right now. 
Yes, the pandemic has been helpful in that we've had some improvements to ventilation and air filtration, but there is so much more that's needed for these buildings and to make sure that they are safe, healthy learning spaces, safe, healthy working spaces. And there hasn't been the commitment to that. The, the government announces that they're, they're going to commit to, I think it's $10.4 billion over 10 years. Well, that's a billion dollars a year. So $17 billion backlog repair, billion dollars right. a year. Who gets left out? Is there access? And, you know, we also have to consider the fact that, that we as high school teachers um, are really training those future trades members. We have a trades shortage in the province. We are entering into collective agreements with all of those trades as well. There are multiple strikes that are happening. How is this work going to get done? Why is it not being put as a priority by the government? Why are we not looking for what we need to create those healthy spaces? High schools are the first rung on the ladder if you want to get young people into trades because that's, that's where right. it kind of starts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And we, you know, we need, the, again, I, I talk about it a lot, but we need that whole education team. So, you know, we have students who might be entering into the trades. They may need some extra supports. Are there educational assistants available to support them? It's really unusual now to find an educational assistant who's assigned to work with the student for academic needs. It's usually for a safety need, for a medical need, for a physical need. That's, mm. that's where those supports are going. The cuts have been so massive to our education supports over the last number of years that it is, it it is bare bottom. I don't know if that's an appropriate term. It is, at the, you know, we're right. We're right. Cut down to the wire. And those people working to support the students are sharing, you know, six, eight, 10 students amongst themselves. I heard last week about somebody who over the lunch period, they supervise two children in a wheelchair. Okay. Mm. Fire alarm goes off. Mm -hmm. How does the wheelchair get out? I, I can't. I can't drive two shopping carts at the same time. I certainly can't drive two wheelchairs with human beings in it safely, but we don't have the staff we need to support the students in the schools. I mean, that's when you, when you, when you phrase it that, that way, it's essentially that education worker in the event of an emergency might have to choose which child I, they save. It's, I, it's horrid, a horrid decision. It is. Yeah. No. I mean, having... <sighs> This was kind of a philosophical question I wanted to get into later, but, you know, we are approaching education in, in a couple of different ways. Um, and and it, unfortunately, it seems like the, the different points of view are having to basically fight it out. You have, on the one hand, education, schools as a uh, gateway to job training. And we were talking mm -hmm. about that with the trades. Um, but on the other hand, you know, education is meant to expand our knowledge and mm -hmm. and. and expose us to different subjects and cultures. And are, are we pitting these two things against each other right now? Yeah, we, we really are. What we're doing is we're diminishing the course offerings to students by cutting back on staff, by not funding education properly. We are limiting their access. I started teaching in 91. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit older. When I was going into grade nine, I wanted to take Latin, but there wasn't a Latin teacher at my high school. So I would have had to go to a different high school. You know, that just wasn't going to happen. It's way worse now. The, the teacher shortage is incredible. We have massive issues with the Ontario College of Teachers not sending out the certification 
the paperwork that people are needing. It's it's May now. People have graduated from teachers college. Many of them will wait until October to get their paperwork to be able to apply for a full-time job. We have a massive shortage in education. Teachers, yes, we have, um, a, there's a clause in the Education Act that allows anyone with a high school diploma to basically sit in the classroom, be paid for the day for supervision because students have to be supervised. We have an even bigger shortage of ed workers. So our, like I said, the EAs or the ECEs or the secretaries, they're just not being filled when they're absent with COVID. There's so many people with COVID right now. We don't have people on the supply list. We have such inequity, even between um, coterminous boards, so the Catholic board and the public board, mm. where the Catholic board may pay $5 more an hour for an occasional worker than the public board does. So like you tell me you're looking for a job and you want to be an EA, which board are you going to go work for? It's right. because we like working with students. It's because we want to support students, but listen at 6.7% inflation right now, people have to pay their bills. They're paying, I don't know. What is it now? A buck 80 or something for a liter of gas. Grocery prices have gone up meat prices, like good luck buying a steak or, you know, even chicken wings or, or something. It's all so incredibly expensive. We're not respecting the work workers and to top it all off the majority of our job class are women so what right. we've done now is we take a woman dominated field we pay them less we expect them to do more they're sharing students amongst themselves it is it is just an untenable situation and nothing is being done to address this where where is the ford government uh, education platform can you right. send it to me when you get it cuz i haven't seen it and i don't know that there'll be anything other than privatize and online it does always seem to be the last thing um, considered. And, and I remember, and I'm sure you remember it too, in, in the summer of 2020, that uh, the, the budgetary information uh, in terms of how much money per, I, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but the, the allocation of the funds per student. The for grants for student needs. Grants yep. for student needs. Thank you. Uh, they, school boards didn't get those till August. I know. Yeah. And yeah, and, well, Sorry, it, was funny, it was funny this year because the Minister of Education uh, told chairs of school boards, you'll get your GSNs, your grants for student needs, the earliest ever. Okay, they did. But what they did, it was like a little framework that they got. The technical mm. paper with all of the details where they can actually do work was actually late too. You know, so mm. you get this big, splashy, showy announcement. We're doing this so well right now, but we're not going to tell you. To have last summer even to have the plan going forward for safe schools not be released until the long weekend in August. And it was 30 pages long and sections of it said to be announced. Like mm. We represent workers who are in the, the provincial schools authority. So the schools for the blind and deaf, and they were one of the portions that said to be announced. So they had no idea <laughs> heading into Labor Day, what supports were going to be in place for them. Totally inadequate. You're right. It often seems like an afterthought. You know, I, I think one of the big issues, too, is Ontarians don't put education as a priority. We mm. need to change that. We need them to understand that connection that, you know, you get the, well, I don't have any kids in the system, so I don't care. Right. These students are the taxpayers of the future. We need them to be educated to get jobs, whether in the trades, whether going on to post-secondary, you know, for anything. We need the jobs filled, and that's not happening right now in Ontario.
Well, I mean, how do we change that, though? Because I, I think you're right. I think education is sort of, you know, if we're using a baseball reference, it's sort of 26 out of 25 in yeah. terms of the, the, the issues right now. People are concerned about the pandemic. People are concerned about yep. affordable housing, uh, jobs, mental health recovery. Yeah. And, and that plays into education, too, let's face it. But I mean, well, in, in terms of like, you know, improving schools, getting more teachers in classrooms. I mean, how do you change that? that narrative, how do you make it more of a priority? Yeah. You know, and if you go back, if you look at the budget that was released last week, what's on the, the cover of the budget, it's that section of the 401. That's like 16 lanes wide in a smoggy <laughs> city view. That's the priority for the budget. It is the priority. The budget highways are mentioned over 150 times in that budget document. Go back and count education. I think you'll need one hand to be mm. able to count how many times autism. We have over 50,000 kids waiting on the autism list. How many times is autism mentioned? Zero, absolutely zero. The government has not made it a priority. It's up to the citizens of the province to say education is a priority. We're doing whatever we can as OSSTF to remind people of that, to share our education platform, to try and be out there. I, I, I get it. You know, people will vote based on the personality of somebody or, you know, I, I just think we have to remember past action indicates future behavior and the past action by the Ford government has been cuts and really not prioritizing education as opposed to, you know, looking to the future and the investment of the province. A lot of people have noted myself included that you can actually push the, the conservatives. You can push Doug Ford. Um, he may come out swinging for action that uh, may not be very popular, but with like a sustained public effort. And I think the, the job action Back in 2020, 2019, 2020 was a great example of that. They mm -hmm. moved. That's right. Um, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, you know, post-COVID or, you know, near the end of COVID, wherever we are with this, um, can, can education workers and, and unions find that, yep. find, find that wiggle room again? Can they start? you know, can you start moving this government? Because the other thing I wanted to get to was I've seen the OSSTF ads and mm -hmm. you, you do not take it easy on Doug Ford. That's like, that, that's like a 30, 30 seconds of, of, of body blows um, mm -hmm. in that advertising. And, but you know, the polls, you know, show you might still have to work with Doug Ford after June. 7th. I know, I know, you know, and really we, we did the work in the in the no cuts campaign, as I call it. Mm -hmm. But the reason they made the changes was because the public was behind us. That, that's how you get things done with the Ford government. You have somebody call Doug Ford, his cell numbers out there. You say, <laughs> you know, this is what I want. Like the whole thing with I don't know if you remember the thing with Arthur last spring. I do remember. Arthur, yes. So, you know, Arthur has power. I need I need to have <laughs> Arthur's cell phone number two so that I can get him to ask for some more things for education. But Arthur managed to get school. The camps opened up and you know to be able to have parties again and that's that's wonderful that's what what works with Doug Ford and that's why he's popular because he mm. connects with people on a one-to-one -one basis I'd like him to have that more global picture but what we will do as a federation is continuing to highlight the importance of education the importance of that whole education team I want people to know that education in Ontario is not just the teachers it's the whole education team and we need to be highlighting that and it needs to be properly funded because because again, as I said, when the cuts come and the GSNs and the grants are announced and there isn't adequate 
funding. Yes, there will be some teachers who will be cut. Absolutely. But what's going to happen then is all of the other education supports will be gone. You know, we have to look at the people that are in the university sector. And, and while university isn't for everyone, there are really inadequate funding for universities and they all operate as their own little, little entities. I'm a Laurentian University graduate and really been disturbed about what I've heard about Laurentian. And, but the government right. has said, oh, it's your problem. You fix it, right? <laughs> I, I completely spaced about Laurentian, honestly. I remember when that, when, when that news broke. But I mean, it's, it's one of these things that, and, and this maybe speaks to, again, the, the, the prioritizing of education. There are just so many issues that come out on, on yep. a daily basis. Even someone like me who sits on top of the news and, you know, co covers these things on a daily basis, it's tough to keep up. And I can't well, imagine what it's like for a regular average everyday citizen with a nine to five job. We forget so many things. Like, honestly, remember the blue license plates? Like that mm -hmm. was our biggest mm -hmm. concern in the world in the, in the early winter of 2020. But people forget about that. You don't see very many anymore, but that was a big gaffe on their part, but they seem to be able to wash their hands and walk away and move on. Okay, folks, you know, it's all right. That's great. It's really great. And we've got, you know, we've had a really good, I think, response during the pandemic as far as vaccines. We're a highly vaccinated province, and I think that's really support helpful. But, you know, to, to take away the ability to, to test or track or trace or the reporting, you know, I, that there's a reason why our wastewater numbers are stagnant. They are continuing to be way too high. They are not dropping. Right. We're not having, again, that global response from the government about something as serious as the pandemic, let alone about education, right? The, I don't know where the priorities are. Um, it was buck a beer for the last campaign, at least in the, in the budget presentation last week. That's not really a budget. It really was a, a bunch of election promises. Right. There were some little, little shiny, glittery objects in there for people. You know, that was lovely to get my license sticker money back. But <laughs> where could that money have gone? And what should it do to have $2 billion going to parents' pockets individually over the pandemic? They didn't even have to apply for it. We have people, you know, who are, are way up high in the income. But if they had a, a child in the system, they got money in their pocket for, for what? Couldn't that $2 billion have been used better globally in education as opposed to buying votes? Right. I guess what, what I've been thinking about, too, and I know your union's been endorsing candidates, but just mm -hmm. to, to look at things generally, if for, for workers in the education sector and they're trying to figure out where to put their vote um, in, in this coming election, yeah. what, what, is, what is it that they want to hear uh, from a candidate? Like, what can a candidate do to be persuasive to people who care about education, whether they're a parent, whether they're random taxpayer like me who doesn't have kids in the system, but, you know, wants yep. kids to be good, well educated or, you know, people who actually work in education? You know, yeah. what, what do you want to hear? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's a number of things I think they need to start globally, even outside of education. And while we are lobbying for education to be at the forefront, we're also looking at protecting public services. Bill 124 must be repealed. That is an attack on women workers, limiting ability to have a wage increase to one percent for a three year period totally interfering in the collective bargaining process, but really, really inappropriate. Then he turns around and he puts money in nurses' pockets, money that's not pensionable. That's, you know, it's just a little gift. Only a whole bunch of nurses have already left the system. So mm. repeal Bill 124, 
that's a problem. Looking at that $17 billion backlog in school repair has got to be done. Looking at the supports, the mental health supports, the, the other, I've spoken about it so many times with you today, but it is that <laughs> whole team addressing the systemic inequities. What can we do to make sure that people have equal access? Education is supposed to be the great equalizer, but it's not equal if I don't have the same services in Sioux Lookout that you do in Sarnia or in Scarborough, right? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, Ontario is tough, right? Because it, it, it's a big place, geographically speaking. The needs in one end are not necessarily in the needs of the other. Um, I mean, it, it's how, how big of a job is that? To, to, to create like the perfect education system you're kind of referring to, where all the gaps are addressed, um, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, well... They've got to start somewhere. They've got to start more than uh, than giving money to developers for highways, right? So let's let's look at the people of the province. They could have at least put a person on the cover of that budget document. Seriously, <laughs> like it's it's a smoggy highway. What are the priorities? You know, right. I I I think it's a matter of highlighting um, the importance of education, but all of those public services and what it does. Ontario is a big province, you just said. It's also a very wealthy province. Hmm. We are very prosperous. We have many means at our disposal. There's a lot of things that could be done. And I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we need to tax here or not tax there or or whatever, but there's many different ways that we could address this instead of giving people little pocket little pocket money, you know, to to kind of tide them over. It doesn't do anything long term. It's the things that the board government canceled when they were first elected, like the indigenous uh, curriculum they had elders who were on their way to toronto to do this and they got an email saying sorry it's canceled we don't we don't need to look at the indigenous curriculum right those type of cancellations the fact that they ripped out all of those ev chargers like you mm. could have at least just left them there you seriously had to rip them out only now in their budget they have 90 million dollars to make ev chargers more accessible well, it would have been more accessible if you'd left them there in the first place. Like, it just seems to be a lot of um, just reactionary decisions. Um, you know, this will help us. This will push us up in the polls. And yeah, we, I can't deny that they're doing very well in the polls right now, too. We're working to try and convince our members because that's what we're allowed to do. Or don't forget, we're restricted under Bill 307 and what right. we can do and to whom we can speak. So we are speaking to our members. We are talking to our members saying these are the candidates that your local leaders have interviewed, have talked to, have compared their desires to our education platform. This, this, these are the people that most closely align with what we want to see in education. Not surprisingly, we haven't found a conservative yet who closely aligns with our education platform, but we are endorsing members from the Green Party, members from the NDP, members from the Liberal Party. We are looking to those who will best be able to support education and public services. And then we are telling people we're being very public about it. I'm doing those press conferences. I'm not ashamed to say this is who we're endorsing. I'm also not ashamed to say that we're picking just one party to endorse. We're picking those candidates who are going to best reflect our education platform and what we need to rebuild Ontario. You don't worry about tax, uh, a tax of, you know, partisanship. That's like, that's not, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you, I, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, people have this sort of trigger about not wanting to look partisan and and yeah. that's that's i mean that's a course of attack people take it may not be valid but it, it is still a course 
well, quite frankly, the system that we're in, people run for a political party. And I would sure. think the fact that we're endorsing people from multiple parties would say that we're really not partisan. What we're doing is we're looking out for education. And if you align with us, that's great. You know, mm. it's I get a tax anyways. I, I get a tax no matter what. <laughs> yesterday, uh, I was involved. Well, yesterday mm. and the day before, there was a little conversation between a well-known uh, right-wing journalist and myself, where he basically called me a Karen. Yeah, you're right. My name is Karen. Not a problem. <laughs> you don't need to call me out for that. Um, you know, and then I'm called out also saying that uh, you probably can't even read that particular publication. I'm sure you know the, the paper that I'm talking about. But like, seriously, the, the attacks to me, that means we're actually on the right track because I am triggering those people who, who really would rather not see education be funded. So that's fine. I can take those attacks, you know, water off my back. Not a problem. Some of them are quite amusing, but <laughs> I know the paper. What I'm wondering is, was it Warmington or Lily? <laughs> Lily. Okay. <laughs> I would have, I might've put money on Lily, but um, yeah. maybe to wrap up. Um, I mean, we've talked a lot about the issues, but we haven't talked a lot about the people. I mean, how are your members coping? I mean, we're approaching the end of, oh. uh, I guess the second full school year since the pandemic started. Yeah. yeah our members are, I don't, I exhausted doesn't even go far enough. They are totally, absolutely out of gas. Um, it was, it was really exciting uh, for the Easter weekend break that there was not a press conference on the Thursday because just about every holiday, long weekend, whatever, Friday afternoon, there would be a press conference and our members would be asked to totally change direction again. You're going back online. You're coming back in the classroom. You can do people need time to be able to do that kind of preparation, right? right? And the school boards, I feel really badly for the school boards because they don't have any of that general information from the, the government just says, here you, here, you just do what you're going to do. Our, our members, though, are so committed to the students that they teach, that they work with, that they support. There was an image somebody shared on Twitter a while ago, and you couldn't see the student with no, nothing recognizable about the student, but there was a custodian standing there with a the broom. It was kind of silhouetted, and the caption was, you know, they've been sitting there talking for half an hour. All of those adults make a difference in the building. All of those adults are supporting students. We have to be considering what the students have gone through, but we also have to consider there's so many mental health needs for our members and they need to be addressing them. They shouldn't be sloughed off. They shouldn't be told, oh, just tough it out or power through. Enough of that. that that's not going to work. We have, like I said, a lot of people who, who are on a leave and really aren't able to continue. This is this is too much. We, right. We've really got to make sure that we are supporting the entire education system. That's the students, that's the adults, that's everybody along the line and making sure that, that we are supporting the human beings. This, the, you know, we're, I'm looking at you on a screen right now. People are listening by audio. We don't have that face-to-face -face connection. This right. interview would probably be a little bit different if we were in person. And then you can have that little kind of chit chat afterwards or whatever that's gone from our lives. We have to bring back the humanity to the system. And that happens by being human and making sure that humans have contact with each other. No matter who wins the election, are, are you hopeful that maybe things will start getting better on June 3rd? Um, yeah, you know, it depends on the day. You could ask me in an hour and I might change my mind. I am optimistic 
that our members are going to do whatever they can to make a difference, to use their voice. We have 63,000 members across the province, on average, about 500 members in each riding. If every one of them votes, we're also asking them to volunteer. And if they could donate to a political party that reflects their values, that would be really, really helpful. I think I don't want to have on June 2nd at about 9.02 to say, you know, I should have done something. I want people to say I did everything I could. And regardless of the outcome, if you know you've done everything you can, then you also know you're going to be there going forward for what else is going to need to be done. It doesn't matter which party is elected. There's no magical party who's going to say, sure, I'm going to come in and we're going to fully fund. It's not going to happen. They can say what they want in an election campaign, but we know that that struggle when they open up the books is going to be, oh my, now what are we going to do? What we need is a government that looks at education as an investment that says we spend money here, we get money back to society. It's an investment. And when you cut money from education, that same dollar 37 for every dollar is gone from the system. So, you know, why would we be cutting when we're actually cutting more than that monetary value? It's not worth it. That seems like a good place to leave it. So Karen Littlewood, uh, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Adam. And once again, that was Karen Littlewood. You can see the OSSTF's 2022 education platform, Strengthen Public Education, Rebuild Ontario, at their website, ossstf.on.ca. If you're interested in hearing from the candidates in this election, we will be hosting all of the Guelph candidates on Open Sources Guelph in the weeks to come, and we will also be marking the return of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast this coming weekend with an interview with NDP candidate Diane Ballantyne, so stay tuned for that. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded out of CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio at the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can fire one off at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out GuelphPolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Politicast for you this time next week. And until then, we will see you next time.